Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Stephen King called international crime writer Michael Robotham an absolute master, so it's no surprise he sold millions of books all around the world. His first thriller, The Suspect, was snapped up in more than 20 countries in just three hours, and the superlatives have just kept on rolling in ever since. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and today Michael talks about his latest book, When She Was Good, and expands on that remarkable career, first as a journalist, then as a ghostwriter, and now as an award-winning, best-selling novelist. But before we get to Michael, just a reminder that there's a full transcript of this chat on our website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Michael's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Michael. Hello there, Michael, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thanks, Jenny. Look, you grew up in rural Australia in country towns, and I've, I've read online a funny little quip that you said there were more dogs than people and more flies than dogs in the places that you grew up in. And then you went straight into talking your way into a cadetship on a Sydney daily. When you, when you went there for that job interview, had you ever been to Sydney before? No, the very first, I had to come down to Sydney six times and catch what was then the North Coast Mail train, which was overnight train. It took 12 hours to get from my hometown to Sydney. And I was 17 when I first caught that train overnight and went for my first job interview. And not only, I'd never been in a building over three stories high and I had never been in a lift before by myself. I don't think I'd actually been in a lift with anyone else either. And so when I got to the Fairfax building, who were the publishers of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Sun and I stood outside the lift and I didn't, I, I didn't go inside the lift because I wasn't sure how to work it and I wanted someone else to get in <laughs> and I'd just follow them. I didn't know whether you had to shut the doors yourself or, you know, I just, it terrified me. And I know the security guards, I could see them laughing, wondering when this hayseed was going to get into the lift. But I did, I waited for someone else to get in before I, I took my, and that was my very first job interview. There were 6,000 applicants for 12 I can't remember it was 12 or 18 positions. Journalism become a very sexy profession ever since Woodward and Bernstein sort of broken Watergate. But one of, I was very lucky to get one of those cadetships and one of my fellow cadets was Geraldine Brooks. Went on to obviously be a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, author and a and very, very famous journalist as well. Yes. So how did you manage to walk your way in there? What did you have on your side? Look, I don't know. I mean, I think you had to go through a whole um, series of each of the interviews involved doing current affairs tests and general knowledge tests and writing essays and all of that narrowed the field down. But when I went for my final interview with the editor, I'd pretty much been told I I'd hadn't got the job because there had been people that had been applying for years and, and narrowly missed out and it was their turn. Uh, and so before I went into the final interview, 
the guy who was coordinator all said, listen, you've done incredibly well to get this far. Don't be disheartened. Try again next year. But you're not going to be one of my my recommendations. And so I went into the interview actually not nervous at all because I thought, well, I've, I haven't got the job. And hence the fact it was a really good interview with the editor. And, and I'm, I'm not a confident person by nature. And I know at one point in the interview, he just looked at me and he said, why should I employ you? Why should you be the one? And I said, I have no idea how to answer that question, but in six months, I'll prove it's the best decision you ever made. And I think he just appreciated my complete ballsiness <laughs> to say something like that, this 17-year-old who literally my parents didn't ever have a phone. I, they couldn't phone me to say I had got the job. They had to send me a telegram. I had, I mean, I, <laughs> I, mean, I, I knew nothing, you know. I'd grown up in tiny country towns, but he gave me the job. And do you reckon they had proven, you'd proven your worth in six months? Yeah, I think, well, I was a three-year cadetship and I was graded, you know, I, I, my three years I did in a year because they graded me by the end, by the end of that first year. Wow. And, you know, I felt, I mean, I, oddly, oddly enough, I mean, journalism was, in a sense, it was supposed to be a stopgap because I was, I deferred a law degree because my parents had no money to be able to help me go to university. And, and journalism was sort of, you know, I mean, I wanted to be a writer, but I thought, and journalism fitted in with that plan, but my parents didn't like the idea so much. <laughs> but I thought, oh, if I go and do journalism for, naively, I'll do journalism for a couple of years. I can always go to university later. And, of course, I felt completely in love with journalism. And even, you know, at the age of 18 or 19, I was interviewing presidents. And, you know, I, I cover stories like the Mad Erebus disaster there, which has obviously got a mm. tragedy, you know, huge tragedy in New Zealand. Mm. And, I was covering huge stories and I was 17, 18, 19 years old. What an exciting time. Mm. And, and it just got better because that, that courage, that arrogance that you had led to 14 years in journalism working in Australia, the UK and America. And during that time, you also had some stellar jobs. I wonder what made you then move, decide to move from newspapers to books? Oh, look, I'd never lost my desire to be a writer, uh, to be a novelist. But I guess what happened was, you know, when you're very young and that confidence and bravado that I had is very much a sign of, of, of the arrogance of youth, mm. you know, uh, when you think you're bulletproof and you think you're God's gift to writing. And I thought all of those things. You know, as a journalist, you know, I, I worked with some of the great journalists and I realised how good they were compared to me and I tried to get better all the time. But when I, I reached the point in journalism, you know, in the UK where, you know, they owned you, they paid you well and you travelled the world, but you couldn't have a relationship or a family because you didn't know from one day to the next whether you'd be in Russia or America or India. I mean, you, very, sounds very exciting, but you can't make a plan. And, and so I sort of thought I'd go as far and as fast as I could, but by the age of 35, I didn't want to be an editor. I wanted to be, I, you know, I loved writing too much. I, I thought I'll, I'll, try, I'll get out by 35. I'll try my hand at writing. And what happened, of course, I was acting features editor of the Mail on Sunday in London. And a young guy came in who was a ghostwriter. And I very naively, I'd never heard of a ghostwriter. And so he was penning, helping pen celebrity memoirs and autobiographies. And he, 
he worked on things like Robert Swan, the polar ice walker, explorer, and Simon Weston, the Falklands hero that was very badly burned in the Falklands War. And I became fascinated with this idea of ghostwriting because I suddenly thought, okay, do I really have the patience to sit and write long form? Could I spend six to 12 months or longer writing just the one thing? When I'd grown up for the previous 10, 12, 14 years, um, doing something different every day. And I guess ghostwriting was the next step along where I, I was offered an opportunity to ghostwrite and I decided to put journalism aside and for the next 10 years I was a ghostwriter. Ten years, gosh. Now you've sold millions and millions of your own books and from the very get-go, as, as seems to be the way you do it, you were a major success. The, the suspect was one of those books that was in demand from several publishing companies and I think went up for auction. Was that a surprise to you? Yeah, this was one, if you tried to arrange it, you couldn't have done it because I was in between ghostwriting projects. So I had, uh, for my sins, I'd just finished working with Rolf Harris, obviously before <laughs> all of the Rolf Harris thing blew up. <laughs> and I'd been asked to write Lulu's autobiography, you know, the 60s pop star Lulu, you know, famous for To Sell With Love. And I had a window of about three months between those two projects. And, and I sat down and I wrote 117 pages of a book that became a suspect. And I showed it to my agent because I didn't want to have to finish it if no one wanted it. And I thought, well, I've now got a family and a mortgage and I can't afford to, to write for nothing. And ghostwriting was making me a good living. So I showed it to him and said, look, should I finish this? You know, and he said, oh, yeah, definitely finish it. You know, he said, I think a lot of people will want to buy this. I said, can you not sell it now so I know that they want to buy it rather than me spending 12 months? <laughs> I know that sounds very naive. <laughs> And he said, no, 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 finish it, finish it, you know. So I put it aside and then I was having lunch with a UK publisher to discuss the Lulu project and she said, what are you working on? And I told her just one chapter of The Suspect, just one little story. And I could see the hair on her arms just sort of raise and she said, I have to read the 117 pages. And I said, well, you're not allowed to. And she badgered my agent for two weeks and finally he gave it to her. And she read it on a flight to Australia, oddly enough. And she landed and she rang up. And I had a very modest figure in my head of what I would need to, to give ghostwriting away for, for a year to finish the book. And she offered three times that amount. And the same agent that said finish it was saying take the money. <laughs> <laughs> and, and news of that offer leaked at the London Book Fair. Again, I don't know how. Uh, in February 2002. So this is, this is about five months later. And suddenly there was this feeding frenzy because the more publishers were told they couldn't read the 117 pages, the more they demanded to read it. And it got to the point that they were offering money to my agent just to read the 117 pages. And I was sitting, living back in Australia, and at three o'clock in the morning the phone was ringing and my agent was, he was literally in the back of taxis, you know, doing deals saying there are seven French publishers bidding, there are five German publishers bidding and four American publishers are bidding and the Spanish have offered this and the Portuguese. And it sold into more than 20 translations in three hours. Oh, and my gosh. <laughs> every, every dream I'd ever had of being a full-time writer, and I dreamed of being a novelist since I was 11 years old, it came true in that three hours. 
That's a wonderful story. That's a wonderful story. Look, the new book that we, we're particularly here to talk about today, When She Was Good, is the second in a new series. It's easily read as a standalone, though, I must reassure people who are listening for the first time. It features a clinical psychologist called Cyrus Haven, and your previous first series that started with The Suspect also had a clinical psychologist as the main character, Joe O'Loughlin. I'm just wondering if you have a particular fascination with that sort of job or whether they just make jolly good stories. I mean, I do have a particular interest in one of the people that I was privileged to work with uh, as a ghostwriter was a man called Paul Britton. Paul Britton is the pioneer of offender profiling in the UK. Now, I don't know if you remember a brilliant series called Cracker. Oh, that yes. Was made. Mm. That was based on, Cracker was based upon Paul Britton, um, not the Robbie Coltrane character, who was obviously a bit of a drunk and a reprobate with a brilliant mind. Paul Britton's not like that, but he does have a brilliant mind. I did two books with Paul. One was called The Jigsaw Man, and he'd worked on celebrated police cases like Fred and Rosemary West, oh, yeah. Jamie Bolger, the little boy. Mm. that, And oddly enough, you know, the, my book, The Secret She Keeps, which was turned into a recent TV series, six-part TV series, that was seeded in an idea of a baby stolen from Nottingham Hospital, Abby Humphreys, and, and Paul Britton was the psychologist that helped recover the baby that was stolen from that hospital. And that's where the idea for the novel came from, from that event. So having worked for two books with this brilliant, brilliant, brilliant psychologist, it was a very easy thing for me to do to create a psychologist as, as my main character because I understood so much more about criminal psychology. And I had this wealth of material, some of which we included in Paul's books, others of which we could never include for legal reasons, but it, didn't, it meant I could still use them in fiction. And so that's the reason that, and I just think, I, even as a journalist, I was always fascinated by why people did things, not so much the, I'm not so much interested in the forensics of how many times someone was stabbed or this or that. I want to know what was going through someone's mind when they committed that crime and what was going through the victim's mind and how did those two people interact. Mm. Well, that beautifully describes what happens with um, this series, because the other central character is this young woman, Evie, who's had an extremely traumatic experience as a young child. When we meet her, she's claiming to be 18 and she's in a children's home still, but she's wanting to be released as an adult. And it's obvious she wants to just escape into anonymity and in, in general society. But there's a great twist to her personality, isn't there, in terms of the issues of telling truth and lies. Give us a bit of an idea of the setup here. You know, Evie was, yeah, Evie was discovered hiding in a secret room when she was very young in a, in a house where a man had been tortured to death and nobody realised there was a child hiding in the walls. And she refuses when she is discovered to reveal her age or her name and all the worldwide search fails to uncover her identity. She is given a a name and made a ward of the court and put in a children's home and every attempt to have her adopted out fails. And one of the reasons is that Evie has what some people may call a gift and what she refers to as a curse and that is she has the ability to tell when someone is lying. And I can understand why it's a curse because we lie to each other all the time. We lie to our friends, we lie to our family, we lie to our children with the, for the best possible reasons. It's how we keep relationships together. 
you know, we tell people, you know, when my wife says, does my bum look big in this? I am not going to say anything other than no, dear. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I only had the one beer. I bought it on special. I'm five minutes away. <laughs> you know, we, we tell lots of little white lies. But imagine for a moment if you always knew when someone was lying, you know, and the power of three little words like I love you or I miss you if you know that they're disingenuous. And so Evie has this has this ability which makes her incredibly exciting to work with. But I guess when you create a character like Evie, and Cyrus Haven realises when he goes in to talk to Evie that she will always have this, this curse in a sense and will always have to be protected. He can't let people know what she can do or she will be exploited. And he also, he also the only way I can make her work as a character though that you know, any crime writer that creates a character who can tell when someone is lying is on track to write the shortest crime novel in history. You know, it is, you know, you put all the suspects in a room and you let Evie loose and the book's over. So the only way I can make Evie work as a character is, is because she is so damaged. She is so out of control. She has suffered so much abuse. And also she is a compulsive liar herself, which means she might be able to tell when someone's lying, but she cannot lie straight in bed. And so nobody believes her when she does tell the truth. Mm-hmm. And that condition is not something that you just made up, is it? It is a real thing. Yeah, no, there, there, are, there are people that have, I mean, I've heard estimates, there are about one in 500 people have an 80% ability to tell when someone's lying. Invariably, they are people that have spent decades working in the prison service or the police or child services or even school teachers. When if you're lied to every day, you get a pretty good antenna, you know, about when you're being lied to. They have about an 80% ability. I mean, normally, of course, we have a 50-50 shot is the average, you know, whether someone's lying. Evie Cormac's very young to have a, this sort of skill. But there is, there is, you know, it's not proven, but there is a growing body of um, evidence, but people have begun to speculate that when a young person has this ability, it is sometimes because they have suffered such an abusive childhood that they have learned to pick up on the very, very fleeting micro-expressions to just keep safe, you know, mm-hmm. you know, because, you know, they don't know from one split second if someone is going to hug them or hit them and it becomes a means of survival to pick up on these sorts of tiny expressions to stay safe. It's obvious that there's at least one more book in the Cyrus Haven series. Well, it is a series of two books at the moment, but there's quite a number of intriguing unsolved mysteries still hanging out there at the end of book two. Have you got any idea yourself at the moment about how many books there are going to be? No. I mean, you know, when I finished the first book in that series, Good Girl, Bad Girl, and you learn a lot about Evie, but you don't know why she was locked in that room. And people said, do you know why? And I said, not yet, because I don't plot my books in advance. So I had no idea who put her in that room and how she got there when I finished that first book. And I just had to try, and I I had to plant clues in that first book, which I had to live with, because I didn't know what they were going to mean. I just had to make them fit. And you're right, there are a few unanswered questions in this book, which means there's at least one more. And I never, it's the same with Joe O'Loughlin. I never knew every book was going to be the last Joe O'Loughlin book. Uh, every book with Cyrus could be the last one. I just never plan ahead. I just come up with the seed of an idea and I just let the story unfold. It is remarkable because they are com- 
very complex in their plotting. So it's really amazing. It must be quite an edge of the seat experience for you as well as the reader. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when when we reach a point in the story when people are in great danger, then I, I'm not sleeping and I'm sitting there thinking, how on earth am I going to save them? I mean, what, how are they going to get out of this? You know, It's a very organic way of writing. It's a very exciting way of writing because I don't know what... When I come in from my writing room and I, you know, the office here, and I, I say to my wife, well, you would not believe what just happened. <laughs> you know, I'm genuinely excited. Whereas, you know, I know there are a lot of writers that plot the whole thing in advance and they know what's going to happen. They know what's coming. <laughs> Whereas, I mean, I like not knowing. I think it's incredibly exciting. But it's also like riding without a net. I mean, you fall and crash and burn and, you know, you yeah, throw away a lot of material, but, but it's, it's a fun ride. That's probably why they're so excited, because they're, they're excited for you as well. <laughs> I sometimes think that the endings are so, they, they develop such pace at the ending and often my editors tell me I have to slow down the ending and partly that's I'm so relieved to have come up with an ending. I race towards it thinking, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> and then I have to be told, no, 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 go back and give, give, give the reader a chance to breathe. <laughs> You've mentioned that Secret She Keeps has been put into a TV series. It's actually still showing here on TV One On Demand. Is it likely to be let, let, um, released in other places we've got quite a few listeners outside of australia and new zealand so I'm oh, just... it's been sold it's now it's the it's the biggest selling australian drama in history it's shown in it it showed recently it was the first australian made drama to ever uh be shown on bbc one prime time in the uk so it's shown and it got 3.5 million viewers every night and it's just it's sold into america on sundance now it's been sold into pretty much all the major territories and look partly that's because i think they did a very good job and partly i think it's also say benefited because so much of the world's production has been closed down by the pandemic <clears throat> there is such you know people are crying out for for material and the BBC bought it before the pandemic, so we're going to show it anyway. But, you know, it's going to get widely, widely played all around the world. You are remarkable the way you keep on notching up these amazing successes. Um, now, as a feature writer on The Mail on Sunday, you also had another great scoop, so to speak. You had access to Moscow's World War II archives, and you had quite a chance to uncover Stalin's fascination with Hitler and particularly his death. I wonder if you could just tell us a little about that remarkable experience. It really struck me as being something pretty amazing. Yeah, that was, I mean, it was the Moscow State Archives. I was the first Western journalist to be given access when the Soviet Union sort of collapsed. And it was amazing. I mean, this was a treasure trove of, of materials going back to Peter the Great and all the Rasputin files and the Nicholas and Alexandra photo albums and the love letters of Nicholas and Alexandra and the the, Ch the Romanov children's diaries and which still had flowers pressed in the pages. I mean, it was, it was complete, it was an astonishing sort of opportunity. But in 1991, I mean, there was a box that was discovered and it should not have been in, in that archive. It should have been in the KGB archives. Nobody knows what it was doing in the Moscow State Archives. But a cleaner stumbled upon a box and inside it was what were known, became known as Stalin's Hitler Files. And at the end of the Second World War, 
the Russians or the Soviet Russians were first into Berlin and first into Hitler's bunker. And Stalin refused to believe that his great enemy, you know, that had led to millions of deaths on the, on, you know, on the Eastern Front could have committed suicide. He refused to believe that Hitler was dead. So he arranged for nine of Hitler's closest aides, his driver, his personal position, his Batman. All of them were taken back to Lubyanka, the prison, the notorious prison in Moscow, and they were interrogated for six years. And together it, it forms probably the greatest archive of day-to-day, of Hitler and his day-to-day life. But it went a little bit further because also in that box was a photograph of the bloodstained sofa that Hitler and Eva Braun had perished upon. But the sofa had actually been broken up and the wooden spars and the fabric were rolled up. So there was a photograph and then the actual fabric, the bloody fabric, and uh, was inside the box. And then similarly there was the top of the skull with a bullet hole through it. Now, because Hitler was buried and burned and buried, burned and buried and then dug up and buried again before the Russians arrived. They had no way of knowing then. They believed that was Hitler's skull and I remember holding it in my hand thinking this could be Hitler's skull. It's since been proven that it is Hitler's skull. The DNA testing has improved where they proved that, it, that in fact it is him. And that was all uncovered in this box by a cleaner and I happened to be the journalist that was there and got access to it. But it was the greatest story I could never tell because we bid a million pounds for the film and the TV and the newspaper rights and we were outbid by the newly refurbished Jewish Holocaust Museum in Israel who, for all the right reasons, wanted to make sure that if this was Hitler's skull and this was Hitler's blood, they wanted to make sure that they had it. Yeah. So do you know, is it on display there now? It's actually, it's gone back recently. It was taken back to Russia and put on display, but some of it is not Hitler's skull. They refused to put, I don't think that's ever been on display, Mm -hmm. but some of the other materials were put on display in Russia a couple of years ago, and some of it has been displayed in Israel. Mm -hmm. But they just don't want the skull to become some sort of rallying point for for neo-Nazis or right-wingers. Yeah, right. Look, I don't know if you'd agree that, most journalists are adrenaline junkies, and I'm not sure if you would class yourself in that category, but I was also touched by hearing you talk about how your feeling of excitement over journalism was slightly changed, jolted uh, perhaps, after September 11. Could you tell us a little about that? How did it change your attitude towards your old job? Yeah, I suppose up until then, it's funny. I mean, I, I am a news junkie and I still probably read three or four newspapers a day and I wake up every morning. First thing I do is turn on sort of news radio. And for many, many years, I mean, I've been out of journalism now since, you know, the mid-90s, but for many years, whenever there was a major event somewhere in the world, I'd know the journalists were, were there. You know, I would have worked with them. They'd be former colleagues of mine or friends of mine. And a little part of me used to want to be there because it's often, you know, you're there reporting on history being made. You know, I was lucky enough to report <coughs> on things like the Berlin Wall coming down and, and Nelson Mandela being released. And, you know, so I was there to report on some major events in, in history and it's an incredibly exciting time to be a journalist. But when, when the planes flew into the World Trade Centre, I remember I knew it was out of my system because I had no desire 
to be there. I felt so devastated. I felt as though, you know, as a writer, I thought, why am I bothering to write? No one will ever want to read a book again. No one will ever want to go to the movies again. No one. I just felt as though the world had been so fundamentally changed. And I, I knew then that I was very pleased that I wasn't there. I didn't want to be a journalist anymore. You know, obviously people did go back to reading, thank goodness, otherwise I wouldn't have a career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Look, turning to Michael as reader, this is the joys of binge reading because we, we tend to focus on the idea that people have become binge watchers in TV and, and reading habits have changed to an extent, especially with digital books, where people can just buy into a series and if they finish book one at midnight, they can just roll up and get book two straight away. There's no more waiting for a year for your favourite author to produce a book. So what do you like to binge read? Are you a big binge reader yourself? No, I'm not, I'm not a binge reader. Um, like I, went, I was once famously quite famously for me, infamously misquoted in one of my very first, I think it was my very first ever interview when I was being, rather than interviewing someone, I was being interviewed. And I was misquoted and I said that only, and they said I'd only read one crime novel. And what I tried to say was I'd, I'd, I tried to read one of each, you know. I'd read one Ian Rankin and I'd read one Conan Doyle and I'd read, because I read so incredibly widely. And so I, I tend not to f discover a writer and then read everything. Although there are some writers, I mean, I mean, there are some writers like Gillian Flynn, who she writes books so rarely, I'll jump on anything she writes because they, they don't come often enough. I think it's one of the things, one of the reasons that I try to make my, where possible, my books as different as I can. Too many writers in my genre even though, you know, readers do love a series and they love, it's like putting on their favourite pair of slippers and getting in their favourite armchair and it's like being back with an old friend when they pick up a, you know, a, a Lee Child or a Rankin or a Val McDermott, you know, Tony Hill, Carol Jordan book or whatever. They're also very quick to say, oh, no, I liked it. Yeah, but it was a bit like the last one. A bit the same, you know, and I sort of want, when I start writing the same book, over and over. I want someone to tap me on the shoulder and say, Michael, maybe it's time, maybe it's time you, you know, you walked away. Yeah, yeah. So if you're not a binge reader, who, who are your favourites then? Tell us who you really oh, rank. Oh, God. Well, as, a, as a, growing up, my huge favourite was John Irving. I was a huge John Irving fan. Crime writing, you know, it's funny, I think James Lee Burke is a genius, but again, I can't read too many of his books because, you know, it's like eating too rich a cake. <laughs> what have I read? I mean, every so often a book stands out, which I, I mean, I, my favourite crime novels, you know, my, where I regard as crime novels, things like Smiller's Feeling for Snow by Peter Hoke or Donna Tartt's A Secret History. Yeah. Or, I mean, these are all The Constant Gardener by John le Carre. I mean, these are beautifully, these are just beautiful novels. Yes. And yeah. with a, you know, they are just beautifully written novels. But I've got loads and loads of, friends who I tend to read as well you know I should read more Stephen King because he's been so nice about my books but I don't like his scary ones I like his um, <laughs> I like his sort of stand by me and Shawshank Redemption type stories not his you know killer dogs or mm. psycho fans mm, mm, mm. <laughs> that's great 
Look, you've had a remarkable career. It would probably be very difficult for anybody to to match you. But when young writers uh, have the temerity to ask you for advice, what do you tell them? What do you say is the secret of having a career as successful as yours? Well, I think one for me is I didn't plan, like, when people sort of say, you asked me earlier, Jenny, whether I you know, planned series, I mean, I honestly thought each book would be my last one. And so I never thought that far ahead. And if you write each book as though it's your last one and you make it as, just make it as absolutely as good as you can. I mean, I guess my, I've got several bits of advice. My three, well, I don't believe in three word slogans, but if I had one, it would be make them care, make the reader care, write compelling characters that the reader cares about. And therefore, you know, you want the reader to be chewing their fingernails or to be checking the locks on the door or to have tears streaming down their face. You want them to care. And the only way to get better is to write and to write and to write and to write. And when you're completely sick of writing, write some more. Yeah. <laughs> it's I, the only way you're going to get better. I think I read somewhere that you write seven days a week. Is that right? Yeah, every day. Every day, even Christmas Day. I had a, I had a journalist come to interview me and they were, he was supposed to follow me around for three days and write 10,000-word article. And he gave up after a day and he wrote 3,000 words and he just said, you don't do anything. <laughs> like, I even asked my wife. She, he said, well, what, what, did he, what does he do on Christmas Day? And she'll go, well, he'll write, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Peter Corris once said the same to me, you know. He said, it's like breathing, you know, you get to the point where if you don't do it, you feel as though there's something wrong. Yeah, yeah. Look, we're coming to the end of our time together, just circling around and looking back down the years. Is there anything that you'd change? And if there is, what would it be? Is there when you you think, oh, I wish I'd done this or that? Yeah, I wish I'd started earlier. You know, I, I guess I wanted to be... Initially, I sort of I wanted to be have a novel by the time I was 30 and then I said by the time I'm 40. And it doesn't matter. I tell a lot of people who are older, I tell them the story of Ron McClarty, a remarkable man who didn't have his first novel published until he was 67 and it triggered a bidding war and sold for millions and millions and millions. You know? yeah. um, it doesn't matter. But I wish I'd started a little earlier, maybe. But oh, I've been incredibly fortunate. I've been incre- I mean, I think, I think that's... Uh, I, I always get surprised when I I talk to publishers and I hear about some of the diva-like diva-like behaviour of, of of established writers. And I keep I keep saying to myself, well, you don't realise a how lucky you have to be to get published, and then you can write the best book imaginable, and there's still a degree of luck that involves that getting into enough hands and word of mouth moving it, you know. And anyone that tells you that a truly great book will never be overlooked or will, you know, truly great, true greatness will always rise to the surface. I go, that's just rubbish. I mean, truly great books have disappeared without trace. Mm. And we only have to look at bestseller lists now to see some very ordinary books, you know, Mm. do very well. Mm. So go Mm. figure. So all you've got to do is I think you just got to realise how, I realise how fortunate I am to be a full-time writer and to be, to be, I made this new one when she was good as novel number 15. I still feel like I'm a newbie, though. I hate being called a veteran. (laughs) (laughs) 
So what have you got in prospect for the next 12 months, the rest of this year and going over into 2021, your plans as a writer? Uh, well, there, there would be no, normally I'd be touring now with a new book mm, out. Mm. And like normally, normally I'd be yeah touring in Australia and New Zealand and then going overseas, but that's not going to happen. But I'm writing a book for next year, a standalone, so it won't be another Evie and Cyrus. Next year it'll be standalone and I'll go back to Evie and Cyrus the year after most likely. So I'm writing standalone and really just trying to stay safe and hoping this madness that we're, we're mad times we're in will, will eventually allow me, because I turned 60 this year, it's supposed to be a big celebratory year of travel and family, my family who's spread all over the world. I've got one daughter in LA and another daughter in Zambia. We're all going to be together for my birthday and that's not going to happen now. So. Oh dear, what month is that? That was in November. Ah, right, yeah. Yes, it's funny. I was just thinking today, you know, when this thing started back in April, May, and I was talking to writers, and I had that feeling at that time, oh, well, in another six weeks, this will be a dead topic. And I was just thinking, yeah, of course, it's far from a dead topic. No, it's an interesting element because I know if you look at when she was good, I set that book in May 2020, and there's no reference to a pandemic. And, you know, but I wrote it before it's all, you know, yeah. all happened. And now I'm trying to write a book which is set next year. And I don't, you know, I refer to, you know, before the lockdown or during the lockdown, but for all I know, there'll still be a lockdown. So it's very difficult when you're writing contemporary stuff to, to know it's moving so quickly to know where we'll yeah. be. Yeah, I, I actually at that time in, in May, I was talking to a Kiwi romance writer who just published a book set in the Whit Sundays in a tourist resort where people were flying in and out all the time. And she was saying, can I do a follow-up to this book and have that still the situation? Because very likely people won't be able to fly in and out. <laughs> and, and it's just that kind of dilemma, isn't it, for the artists? Do they, novelists, do they pretend it's not happening and, and, and believe that readers want it to not happen or do they have to be realistic? Uh -huh. In, in my case, I wrote it in the acknowledgement, so I'm sorry, but the book was written before it all happened. <laughs> but next year I'm going to have to make a call yeah, next year yeah. to yeah, what I do. So obviously you enjoy interacting when your readers, when, with your readers when you've got it set up and planned. How can they find you online and do you like to do much online stuff? Well, I mean, I've, I've, I've got the normal Facebook and Twitter and pages and I mean, I've only ever posted if I've got some news. Like, like this week, I've Good Girl, Bad Girl has just been shortlisted for the Gold Dagger in the UK, which, which I won when I, with Life or Death in 2015. So that was quite exciting. I'll normally post when there's some big news. And I try to reply to people if they send me messages. And most of them I'll, I'll try to get around to, to replying to. It just depends. And it can't, some people slip through the cracks, but I try to reply. <laughs> But normally I just to say thank you very much for the kind words, you know, because they normally just thankfully just writing to say how much they enjoyed the book. And yeah. But I, if someone writes to me who's very young or interested in writing or have, has Parkinson's because Joe Lachlan had Parkinson's in that previous series, so if I get people that have suffered Parkinson's, I'll, I'll try to give them a, a longer answer. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, Michael, thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful talking and all the very best with this new standalone. Thank you very much, Jenny. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. 
You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.